Hi everyone, welcome to The Last Sisyphus, a podcast dedicated to fiction and philosophy. I'm your host, Colin Jones, and today I want to talk about Philip K. Dick's 1981 novel, Valis. Before I get started, if you haven't heard, I am coming out with a novel at the end of the month. All those who have supported the podcast through Patreon will receive a signed copy of the book. If you're not already a patron, there's still two weeks before the novel is released. Please be sure to check out the link in the description of the episode for details about the different tiers of Patreon and what else you can do to support the podcast. All proceeds, of course, go directly toward making this podcast and the episodes in it better. If I'm being completely honest, I had written Philip K. Dick off after hearing not-so-great things about Blade Runner, the film adaptation of Dick's novel entitled Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It should be noted also that I still have never seen the film, and it will probably be some time before I get around to it. It's just not really something that interests me at the moment. Now, is this an unjustifiable reason not to read Dick's material for myself? Absolutely. But I have a strange allergy, it seems, to extremely popular stories. This is typically born out of a general distaste for prose most people like. I know this probably sounds edgy and pretentious, but I cover the details of my position in my podcast episode about literary fiction and commercial fiction and the distinction between the two. You can check that out on your own time, if you so choose. The reason I finally decided to give Dick's Vallis a try is due to my research into esotericism and the occult. Dick's major contribution to the field of esotericism is his posthumously published work called The Exegesis. The Exegesis goes into detail about Dick's transcendental experiences that took place over a period of time in early 1974. I'm still working my way through the exegesis. It's not always coherent, and it's definitely not linear. It's a challenge to get through. However, Dick goes into much of what he wrote in the exegesis in Vallis and other pieces of fiction. So again, this is how I came to the work. The intrigue surrounding one of the 20th century's greatest science fiction writers finally got to me, to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I can't say I was disappointed. To date, Vallis is very likely my favorite piece of science fiction. Not for the characters or the complicated plot, if there even is one, but for the philosophical, religious, and metaphysical possibilities discussed in the work. It's not every day that a piece of what could be considered commercial fiction is so steeped in these themes. I have said before that prose which prioritizes philosophical musings over the actual story is not very much my thing, but this work is a clear exception. I think part of it has to do with the fact that I want so badly to believe in Dick's personal experiences. I believe that he believes what he said, and I'm willing to leave open the possibility that what he said and wrote regarding metaphysics is a very real possibility in reality. The bottom line is that we as a species know almost nothing, and because of this, virtually anything is possible. I think this is a fundamental premise of Dick's work. His books are not mere ruminations of possible futures, they very well could be the future and in some sense, they could be happening right now. Philip K. Dick was born on December 16, 1928, to Dorothy and Joseph Edgar Dick. One interesting part of Dick's origin story is that he technically had a twin, and her name was Jane, but she died six weeks after birth. This small factoid played a major role in Dick's life, inspiring him to lean into the phantom twin motif in some of his works. But it didn't take long for Dick to find his writing legs, selling his first piece of fiction at the age of 22. The story was called Rug which was about a dog who imagined that the garbage men, who came every day, were stealing valuable food which the family had carefully stored away in safe metal containers. You can see the weird and lovely imagination of Dick already at work as a young adult, and he wasn't about to give up on the prospect of writing, saying that he would be willing to commit 20 to 30 years 
to become a literary writer if it took that long. Though he had high aspirations as a commercially successful writer, he largely missed out on this reality while he was alive. But that's not to say that he didn't see some success during his lifetime. Dick won the 1963 Hugo Award for The Man in the High Castle, a book I still have yet to read. However, I did watch the television series, and it was an absolute blast. Be sure to check that out if you're looking for something to watch. In 1971, Dick's marriage to Nancy Hackett was falling apart. She would eventually move out of their house in Santa Venetia, California. This essentially spelled trouble for Dick, who abused amphetamine for the decade leading up to the separation. The abuse of the substance was largely due to Dick's regimented writing schedule. He had written 21 novels between 1960 and 1970, an incredible feat in itself. But he ran into writer's block shortly after, which prevented him from writing anything until 1974. For anyone who has written a long piece of work, it's probably unimaginable to think that writing 21 novels in 10 years is even possible. Many of those who manage this kind of output today typically don't write very good stuff, and they, a lot of times, have ghostwriters doing the hard work. Substance abusers were welcome in Dick's home, too, during this time. And let me sharpen this point. He literally welcomed drug addicts into his home. He lived with them. And that doesn't sound like a very good plan for someone who already has a propensity for substance abuse. It was on November 20th, though, 1971, when things started to get really weird. This was a time when Dick was still recovering from the effects of sodium pentothal after the extraction of an impacted tooth. A young woman apparently delivered Darvon, an analgesic substance in the opioid category, to his home. When he went to the door to see who it was, he was struck by this woman's beauty. What he noticed more than anything, though, was the woman's golden necklace. When he asked the woman about the peculiar fish-shaped design of the necklace, she said it is a sign that was used by the early Christians. And it should be noted here that Dick had a deep fascination with the Gnostic tradition. And again, the Gnostics and what they believed are a huge thread throughout his fiction. Dick recounted in letters that the sun had reflected off the young woman's pendant, which caused the creation of a pink beam of light that appeared to mesmerize him. He came to believe that the beam gave him a certain amount of wisdom, and he believed the light to be intelligent. One of the most important parts of the Pink Beam story is that it gave him information about Dick's ill son. The Dicks, Philip and his wife, rushed their son to the hospital only to find out that the medical diagnosis was cohesive with what the Pink Beam had told him. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? When the woman at the door finally departed, Dick started to experience a number of detailed hallucinations over an extended period of time. Although he and others chalked up the experiences to the side effects of medication, he eventually discarded this possibility when the hallucinations remained after weeks. Dick shared with Charles Pratt, saying, quote, I experienced an invasion of my mind by a transcendentally rational mind, as if I had been insane all my life, and suddenly I had become sane. Close quote. It was throughout February and March of 1974 that Dick experienced several hallucinations, which he cryptically referred to as 2374. The pink beam was not the only thing he experienced. He also describes hallucinations as geometric patterns, perhaps fractals even, and he sometimes even experienced pictures of Jesus in ancient Rome. Many of these experiences are drawn out in Vallis, but they are all within the pages of the exegesis. There was also a period when he believed himself to be living two parallel lives in two separate time periods. In one life, he was the Philip K. Dick we all know now. And then there was another individual named Thomas, who was a persecuted Christian living in Rome in the first century AD. It's easy to see how those who supported Dick, at least at the beginning, slowly started to drop off. Who the hell is honestly going to believe this story? But also, who is to say that it didn't happen? Dick himself ruminated over the fact that there is only a razor-sharp line between the sane and insane, and I'm inclined to believe this little remark. 
Dick at one point believed that he had been taken over by the spirit of Elijah from the Bible. He covers this in his fiction too. And all of this sounds ludicrous, I know, but scientists are currently entertaining the possibility that the universe itself is a hologram. Are we really in a position to call into question Dick's personal experiences? There is so much more to be said about Dick, but I'll move on for the sake of this book review. Perhaps I'll do an extended biography on Dick in the future. Philip Dick's writing style is very similar to Charles Bukowski's. It's minimal and straight to the point. I don't want to say that his language is sparse like Bukowski's, but it has the same feel. You never get the sense that the story is being traded for decorated flourishes. Short sentences and clarity. That's the name of the game. And I'm completely okay with this. In fact, this is my favorite kind of writing. The assumption is that Dick was writing for the purpose of being understood. From the material I've read across fiction and nonfiction, I can't help but feel that some writers are writing for other writers. They are not writing for a readership. This, as can be seen, creates a closed system. This is where pretentiousness dwells. When it comes to America, the average American has the reading level of an 8th grader. This is a fact. Dick is writing for the average American. This cannot be said for the likes of Juna Barnes or Thomas Pynchon or William Gaddis. They're clearly not writing for the average American. And it makes sense that Dick would want to write for a wide audience, considering he was writing science fiction, in an era when the genre was not considered very smart. I would say it's still not considered to be top tier by the upper brass of the literary community. I would, of course, disagree with this assessment, but it is what it is. The biggest upside to Dick's writing is that he welds simple language with complex ideas. This allows for the average reader to grasp what is being said without throwing the book across the room. And I would know, and I'm sure you do too, I've felt like throwing someone's novel a quarter mile down the road for its inability to clearly communicate its message. It's frustrating. I suppose it would be appropriate to give you a little synopsis of the book's plot to start out, should some of you be completely unfamiliar with the work. And this comes from Goodreads, quote, Vallis is the first book in Philip K. Dick's incomparable final trio of novels the others being The Divine Invasion and The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. This disorienting and bleakly funny work is about a schizophrenic hero named Horace Lover Fat, the hidden mysteries of Gnostic Christianity, and reality as revealed through a pink laser. Vallis is a theological detective story in which God is both a missing person and the perpetrator of the ultimate crime. It's true that the book is humorous. It's also true that the book behaves as a sort of schizophrenic journey through one individual's rationale and justification for the weird shit that he experiences. And as I've mentioned, it's really weird. The plot follows a man named Horse Lover Fats, who is widely considered to be the character plagued with the experiences that Philip K. Dick really did experience. The narrator of the story is a friend of Fats, who happens to be named Phil. And I'm sure that's not by accident. I'm sure you can see how this gets confusing. There are certain times when the narrator seems to communicate that Fats and himself are one person. And then there are other times when they are clearly separate people. The story is generally plotless, too, and the characters are not really compelling in and of themselves. There is essentially Fats and his three friends. There is the traditional Catholic, whose name is David, Kevin, who is the cynic, Phil, the narrator and the author, and of course, Fats, the metaphysically burdened. The general narrative follows these four individuals in their quest to understand what Fats experienced. As the story progresses, the four become convinced of Fats' experiences and eventually refer to themselves as the Rapidant Society. I won't spoil how Fats convinces these three of his position, but it's compelling. I don't want to give too much away, but the story is more of a philosophical and religious treatise than anything else. There are even bolded passages in the book that are pulled directly from the exegesis. One such passage reads, quote, The universe is information, and we are stationary in it, not three-dimensional and not in space or time. The information fed to us, we hypostasize into the phenomenal world, close quote. And here's another one, quote, 
I term the immortal one a plasmata because it is a form of energy. It is living information. It replicates itself, not through information or in information, but as information, close quote. What can be assumed by this is that Dick was under the impression that the god we all grew up learning about, the one who created the earth and the heavens, is essentially a schizophrenic and irrational. But there is a higher order god, too, above the one we grew up learning about, who is attempting to penetrate our world in an effort to help us make sense of what is going on. I am keen on this idea. I don't happen to think that god is necessarily logical. It's plausible that we are living out what is known as Descartes' demon. The creator of this particular world, according to Dick, could very well be this demon. There's a passage in the book that draws this out. It goes as follows, quote, In other words, the universe itself, and the mind behind it, is insane. Therefore, if someone in touch with reality is, by definition, in touch with the insane, infused by the, by the irrational. In essence, Fat monitored his own mind and found it defective. He then, by the use of that mind, monitored outer reality, that which is called the macrocosm. He found it defective as well. As the hermetic philosopher stipulated, the macrocosm and the microcosm mirror each other faithfully. Fat, using a defective instrument, swept out a defective subject, and from this sweep got back the report that everything was wrong. Close quote. The universe, according to Dick, is one giant information processing machine, and we are the little nodes that carry this information to and fro throughout reality. I don't want to spoil the whole book for you, but there is one question at the heart of the book, and it's a paradoxical question concerning God. If God is all-powerful, can it create a ditch that it cannot jump over? Or put another way, if God is all-powerful, can it create a rock that it cannot move? It's this irrationality, this mental jamming, that Dick is attempting to understand in the world. If there is indeed an intelligence out there that can beam information to me from outer space, then why couldn't it prevent my friend's cat from getting run over by the neighbor's car? All of these questions are paradoxical, and contradictory even, and perhaps to a greater extent, nonsensical. This is truly a special book, and I would recommend it to anyone who has asked the big questions or who has thought about the big questions. I plan to start reading the second book in the Vallas series before too long. Let me know what you think about the book, if you've already read it. And if you haven't, is that something you'd be interested in? I'd love to know. If you enjoyed this episode, and by extension this podcast, please consider supporting me through Patreon. New episodes air every week on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or concerns, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at The Last Sisyphus. Or you can just shoot me an email at Colin, C-O-L-L-I-N, Jones, the number 15, at ProtonMail.com. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.